Corinthians chapter 11. It's a bit longer chapter, and I plan to take two two weeks to cover it. So I'm going to cover verses 1 through 15 this morning, if the Lord wills, and then finish the chapter next week, if God permits. All right. So I'll begin by reading the first 15 verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in the New King James translation. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. If we have been thoroughly manifest, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied, and in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you. So I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works." Okay, now to look at an outline of this chapter, and this is not completely original with me, uh, only the heirs are original with me, but um, no, this is not original with me, and you know, different, you'll find that different commentators will give different outlines of this. Matthew Henry sort of has one way that he outlines it, and, and others will have other ways they outline it, and this made the most sense to me, so this is what I took. But uh, we can break it down this way. Part 1, Paul's concern for the believer's faithfulness, verses 1 through 4. Part 2, Paul and the false apostles, verses 5 through 15. Part 3, Paul's reluctant boasting, verses 16 to 21. And part 4, Paul's suffering for Christ, verses 22 to 23. Now, the first two parts are what I hope to cover this morning, and then the last two parts, parts 3 and 4, are what I would like to cover next Sunday morning. So, verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. So, folly. Paul is referring here, ironically, to his vindication of his ministry as an apostle. And in this passage, 
he uses a lot of irony and hyperbole, alternately. Sometimes a little hyperbole, sometimes a little irony. I don't know why. Maybe this is just a difficult subject for him to talk about. I think it was. I think Paul regards it as folly to speak of his own qualifications. Listen, do you know how qualified I am? Let me tell you. I have this and that and the other thing going for me. He doesn't like to do that. And, and that seems foolish. And in a sense, in a sense, it is. And yet, because the false teachers at Corinth, a certain amount of it became a necessity. So I think, I don't know, I'd venture to say Paul is uncomfortable with this. Now, of course, Paul is being moved by the Holy Spirit. He's not speaking of himself, but he's being moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit wants him to say this. But I just venture to think that Paul um, would rather not. And yet this is necessary, and the Holy Spirit moves him to speak of it. And so he uses a bit of irony and a bit of hyperbole as he goes through here. Verse 2, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Chaste, of course, pure virgin. Now in this passage, Paul likens himself to a friend of the groom, who in that culture took a prominent part in the negotiation of marriage. Now in our culture, the best man, you know, he sort of is there at the wedding and he, you know, is, tries not to be too goofy and mess up too much and, and do or say dumb things, but of course he can't help it. And let's see, he's got the ring and um, he fishes that out at the right time, hopefully. And, uh, you know, it, it purely ceremonial duties. Um, you know, this is kind of different. This is like the friend of the bridegroom who actually plays a part in negotiating the marriage. Very, very different from us. And so he says, I have betrothed you to one husband. And I, I want to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Not that they had never sinned, but that he wants them to be faithful to the real Christ, not an imposter. And he wants them to follow the true gospel that he's preached to them, not another. Following a different gospel would be, in this analogy, following a different gospel would be spiritual adultery. And so a lot of the cautions in here and a lot of the admonitions are against following a false gospel or mixing other things with the gospel and thus having a false gospel. We come to verse 3, which to me seems like the key verse of this passage. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Of the serpent, of course, uh, this is the form that Satan took to tempt Eve in the Garden of Eden. And uh, the serpent apparently in those days, way back then, was a bit different than, uh, than uh, serpents were after the fall, when God cursed the serpent and told him he'd go on his belly afterwards. But anyway, uh, we don't know. It's, it'd be, it's an interesting study how things were different before the fall. And I think the physical world must have been different in a number of ways. But that's not our study for today. But, so the serpent, 
Satan, now he's referring to Satan as the serpent, although not all serpents are Satan. Well, Satan doesn't take the form of serpents today, I don't think. But um, nonetheless, uh, likening, use a serpent as an analogy for Satan. And Satan tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now, simplicity here, this is the single-hearted loyalty that my heart is single, my heart, with my whole heart, I am following the Lord Jesus. I am trusting in the Lord Jesus alone. All my hope on him is stayed, all my help from him I bring. That's, that's my only hope. You know, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I'm not trusting anything else for my salvation. Not trusting in Jesus and Scientology. Not trusting in Jesus and QAnon. Or whatever. Other things we might uh, mix in with it. And just as Satan deceived Eve, he would like to deceive us too. And sometimes Satan tries to deceive people into cults. By saying, hey, don't believe Christianity. Believe this other belief system that is... Uh, superior, because whatever reason, it's superior. Um, and um, we certainly need to be on guard against that. Think of belief systems, competing belief systems that would flatly say, don't follow Christianity, follow this other belief system. And there would be just atheism or uh, secular humanism. You know, uh, don't, don't believe in Christianity believe that all that is is the result of chance plus time. And, uh, you know, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Believe that. So atheism would tell you. So secular humanism would tell you. And it's out there, and it's bidding for our souls and for our allegiance. Or today, uh, Islam would be another rival belief system that doesn't worship the same God at all. Um, we worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and Jesus Christ, his Son, and the Holy Spirit whom he sent. Islam does not worship that God at all. But Islam would tell you, oh, you know, believe Islamist instead because whatever reasons they would tell you, look, the followers of Islam are so dedicated, they're so determined, or whatever reasons it would give you. But far more often and far greater danger, I think, to us in the day in which we live and throughout my life, as I look back on things, belief systems that are, have come and go, have gone, and belief systems that have come and unfortunately are still here, are those who would tell us, oh sure, you can be a Christian, but that's not enough. You need something more. Now, I don't mean you need to be more instructed in the scriptures and more, learn more of doctrine and learn more about Jesus you know, we're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to do that, of course, yes. But I mean, those who would tell us that we need something more than what the Bible tells us. And tell, oh, you can, you can still be a Christian, you can still be following Jesus Christ. At least that's what they'll tell you in the early stages of their attempts to woo you for their rival belief systems. But you need this other too. I remember two uh, clean-cut young gentlemen who stopped by and wasted my, I mean, uh, importuned me while I was working on the, the yard at my house in Oklahoma, low these many years ago. And, uh, well, you know, with all these new things that are in the world today, 
since the New Testament was written, uh, we don't think God would have left us without some new word. Well, I don't think God would have given us any special word in the 1840s. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, and, um, and I, I said, if people would obey what God gave through the Apostle Paul in, in Romans chapter 1, we wouldn't uh, be having, they had mentioned the AIDS epidemic, we wouldn't be having the AIDS epidemic, but they're uh, receiving in themselves the recompense of their deeds, which is meat. Eventually, I sent them on their way and could not wish them Godspeed. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, sometimes, though, there's a bit of truth in advertising, strange to say. I remember not that long ago, but still many years ago, I was watching television, and that doesn't happen very often. I didn't know how I came to be in front of a television that was turned on. But uh, there I was, and there was a commercial. And it said, uh, send in for a free copy of another gospel of Jesus Christ. Really? Uh, I'm supposed to actually send in for a free copy of another gospel. You know, if I read the one I've, I have, which fortunately, happily, I have read, um, it says that I'm specifically not to accept another gospel. I'm to reject another gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, that, uh, that other gospel of Jesus Christ was, again, the Book of Mormon. So, a bit of truth in advertising there, of course. That's not the message they wanted us to take. But if you were a Christian who had read the Bible, you would know not to take that. We find this in other things, too. The Scientology cult is not very big now, but I remember it was quite a big deal in the uh, early, very early 1980s. And Scientology uh, is, is very much a cult, but it was preached as something that, oh, yeah, this, this is just a, a nice little add-on to your Christianity. It's a little aftermarket uh, uh, upgrade that you can do on your Christian Christianity. Our Christianity does not need aftermarket add-ons at all. Uh, but Scientology advertised itself as this. I had a fellow, uh, he was an American, uh, at least uh, he and his, his buddy spoke uh, good accentless American English, which means he probably wasn't a European, because the Europeans, when they learn English, they all learn to speak it with just this appalling, thick British accent which my German friends, just, they flip out when I tell them, yeah, you speak good English, but you do have a thick British accent. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. Uh, you thought that was the right way to speak it. But <clears throat> anyway, um, no, he was American, but accosted me on the streets of, of all places, Vienna. Um, not Vienna, Illinois, but Vienna, uh, Austria. And uh, was uh, proselytizing for Scientology. Oh, it's okay if you're a Christian, but you can have this too. No, um, we, don't, we need to be on our guard against Christianity and. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't do anything else but, you know, well, our religion, what we worship, our, our things that we need for life and godliness, how we are reconciled to God and how we please God, we need to make sure that that stays focused strictly on the gospel of Jesus Christ as set forth in the 66 books of the Bible, that and nothing else. And we might, you know, maybe your, your hobby is stamp collecting, and I can't think of anything wrong with stamp collecting, and I can't think of anybody that's been led into sin by stamp collecting. I suppose it, if you became so caught up in your stamp collecting that you said, I've got to stay home from church on 
you know, or I've, I, can't, I can't be bothered to read my Bible because I've got to spend the time on stamp collecting. I've never heard of anybody like that. But, you know, nothing wrong with it. But if it, it got to the point that you thought that, you know, stamp collecting was a fundamental part of your Christianity, we'd have a problem. Now, like I say, that's an example of something that isn't that way. But there are other things that could be dragged in. You know, patriotism, I suppose, is a good thing. Loving your mother, but well, let's, let's back up from patriotism. Loving your mother is a good thing. In fact, the Bible says, honor your father and your mother. And you should do that. And if you're not honoring your father and your mother, you're not squared away with God the way God wants you to be. You need to honor your father and your mother. And loving your mother is a good thing. You should do it. I loved, well, love her still. She's in heaven. I still love her. But um, that's good. But we wouldn't want to worship our mother. We wouldn't want to suggest that somehow, um, well, this is part of the way to God. Um, it happens to be, God says, honor your father and your mother, so do it. But, other, you know, you wouldn't want to elevate that to the level of part of the gospel. Patriotism is, I suppose, a good thing in the sense of loving your mother. Uh, if it doesn't dispose us, you know, to do wrong to others or uh, to do wrong at all, right? Or to put patriotism on a level with, um, with the gospel or to make it part of the gospel. You know, the, the absence of the problem that I'm about to mention here, the absence of that problem from this assembly of believers right here is something I especially like about this assembly of believers, that I, I have never seen the, the particular problem I'm about to mention. I have never seen it here. But I have seen it in some churches, and, and churches that were in other respects very good churches, churches that I could take you to today and... and um, you could go through their statement of faith and you could listen to the sermons being preached and I'm sure you would feel that and, and you know you, you would be very pleased with their doctrine and with how they were doing a lot of things. But I have seen times when these churches uh, have patriotic services or patriotic observances and I'm not against patriotism again. But when you have a patriotic worship service, who are we worshiping? Um, you know, Patriotism is great, but we're here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're here to learn about him. Can a brother from India, when our Indian brethren are here with us, I hope that they feel at home. I hope that they don't feel like foreigners in here. Um, and I don't know what their, well, I know some of their immigration status, and some of them are, they're not, they don't have U.S. passports, so they would technically be foreigners in the United States, not since the United States, as I was an Ausländer. When I, when I lived in Germany. Uh, uh, and, and some of us were quite outlandish indeed. But um, So they might be foreigners, but they're not foreigners to us. They're our fellow countrymen, uh, and, our, and they're uh, fellow citizens of God's kingdom. So uh, that's something I'm afraid in some churches. And, and if you haven't and I don't know if you've seen it done or not, and if you've been very blessed and you've always been in good churches that have not gotten that, that thing out of its proper proportion, you might think, how could that possibly be? And, uh, uh, but it can. It could be emphasized to the point that it really seems as though we were worshiping our country and not our God. 
and or anything else there. And see, so you can you can do Christianity and anything. C.S. Lewis in Screw Tape Letters, and he's not wholly rich, I know, but in Screw Tape Letters, he has Screw Tape the Devil recommending to Wormwood the lower ranking, well, the subordinate devil. <laughs> uh, he sort of reverses the directions there, but recommending that he get his target person to think in terms of Christianity and. And it doesn't matter what comes in the blank after the and. It could be Christianity and spelling reform. That's pretty innocuous. But the point is if, you know, that it's Christianity and anything else. And unfortunately, a lot of the ands that get brought in and dragged into the gospel, aside from what other damage they may do, one of the first things that they do when you, you, when you go down the road of Christianity and they start dividing the church. And I don't know if it's me. It's just because I'm getting to be an old man, and I'm going to be 60 years old in a few more days here. And uh, I, older friends have assured me there is life after 60, so I have hopes. But um, uh, now that I'm getting a little over the hill, perhaps, what is it, isn't it 60 is the new 30 or 40 or something? Anyway, um, Maybe it's just that I'm old and I see these things more and they were always there. And as someone who studies a lot of history, I, I am kind of skittish about thinking that something brand new is new thing under the sun is happening. Well, I, read, I also read uh, Solomon and there, you know, there's no thing under the sun, no new thing under the sun. But um, uh, it seems like there are so many more issues that are dividing the church today. So many more things. And, and some of them are good things. Things that I'm in favor of doing. Christianity and... I won't say whether I'm in favor of spelling reform or not. Um, I'd have to learn how to spell first. That was too good at that. But uh, anyway. Uh, but good things. And yet they wind up dividing the church. It's interesting to note... You know, what's the first problem? We start reading the epistles to Corinth, and the first problem we hear about that they've got at Corinth is they're divided up into factions. And I wonder if this might be something that goes along, almost like the, the canary in the mine, you know how the miners in the 19th century and maybe earlier they used to bring a canary down into the mine because if the air was bad in the mine, there were noxious gases, the canary is more sensitive, so the canary would die before the humans, and they would say, well, the canary is dead, I think we should leave. And maybe that, that a, a division within the church, you know, we don't really like to talk with or fellowship with those other brethren because they believe such and such about. And then you fill in with something that's not really part of the gospel. And maybe they do. And maybe we believe something else. And maybe what we believe is actually true. And maybe our poor brethren are a little deluded about the best way to do X, Y, or Z, or how you should spell words, or whatever. But that... If that starts dividing us and, and breaking our fellowship with the brethren and threatening to split churches, God forbid, probably, is, is that the canary in the mind that's telling us, you know, we might be looking at another gospel? Well, I've spent a lot of time on verse 3 here. Did I mention I thought it was important? I think it is. And, and we must not let anything else uh, deceive us as the devil would, by his craftiness, try to deceive us from a single-minded loyalty and reliance on Christ. Verse 4. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom 
we have not preached, or if you receive a, a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may put up with it. And Paul's worried about them. Yes, I'm worried about you. I'm afraid that if some false teachers come along, they're teaching another Jesus. And they say the Greek word here is, is not for a, a, a different one, but, but nominally the same one, but misrepresented, preached in a different way, so as to represent him as something that he's not, someone that he's not, and a different way of, of pleasing him or of uh, belonging to him. A different spirit, of course, a, a completely different spirit would be necessary for serving a misrepresented Jesus. And how many problems, by the way, do Christians uh, uh, get into or people get into uh, because they believe that God is not as he represents himself to be in the Bible uh, in, in various ways that he whether they think that God is this uh, indulgent old grandfatherly figure who, um, uh, you know, will just, is just going to let everything slide and he, he wouldn't send anybody to hell. Or, on the other hand, they think that God is some terrible, um, cruel uh, taskmaster who's looking for a way to send you to hell. And as one preacher said, uh, if God were looking for a way to send us to hell, we'd be there. Um, but, you know, people believe false things about God, and that leads them to do false things. Or a different gospel, a different path to salvation. Well, you know, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, plus keeping the ceremonial law, plus becoming Jewish, plus being circumcised, i.e. becoming Jewish, which was probably the pro some of the specific problems they were dealing with there and the false teachers in the church at Corinth, because that kind of false teacher tended to follow Paul around and to try to negate what he was teaching. Whatever we might put around there, that salvation is through Jesus and uh, a, a different path of salvation, a different way to please God. He says, you may well put up with it. I'm worried that if somebody shows up teaching the wrong thing, you guys might listen to him. You, might, you guys might give him a hearing, and that's a problem. Verse 5. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, this sounds rather boastful on Paul's part. Uh, it seems like, uh, apparently here, and, and the it seemed to be pretty much of a consensus among commentators, uh, uh, multiple ones that I read, uh, there, I think there may be some, well, might not be unanimous, but uh, that in saying the most eminent apostles, Paul is referring ironically to the false teachers who were there in the church, the most eminent apostles. So it's, a, it's an ironic thing. I, for I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. It's interesting that a number of Bible translations uh, translate it um, uh, that way. Um, the English Standard Version translates that phrase, these super apostles. So for I consider that I am not at all inferior to these, inferior to these super apostles. Uh, one of the commentaries I was reading said, and again, no, not being a Greek scholar myself, I couldn't tell you if they're right or not, but they said that the literal translation was these more than apostles, these over apostles. So you've got these false teachers who have come in here, and they're not apostles at all. They were not witnesses to the risen Christ, and they, are, um, they were not chosen by Christ and sent out uh, for the purpose of, of uh, promulgating the gospel. 
and giving the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures. But they would, they would have the Corinthians believe that they either are apostles or that they are more than apostles and that they have that kind of authority. And Paul says, I'm not inferior to them. Even though, he says, I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Untrained in speech. Now this is, is, refers specifically to, being tr- uh, to tra- having received special, specialized training in speech. Rhetoric and elocution were special areas of study in those days. Um, it, it's just, you know, how to speak eloquently especially within the Greek world. Because any Greek, um, they, they were a litigious society, and they sued each other a lot, and uh, my understanding is that, at least for uh, some ages of Greek history, and I'm not quite sure if this is always true, or, or still literally true in, in Paul's day, but certainly it had shaped Greek's culture, uh, Greek culture, was that you could not uh, hire a lawyer to defend you in, in court. Now, sometimes hiring a lawyer will only do so much, I was seeing um, that fellow who was photographed, I believe who shared on social media, a photograph of him walking through the Capitol Rotunda, grinning like an idiot, carrying, the, uh, carrying off the um, rostrum uh, and, and grinning about it. Uh, he has unfortunately found himself, well, or fortunately, it's unfortunate for him, I guess. Or maybe this will bring him to a repentance. I don't know. Anyway, he uh, had... It's in court, and his lawyer said, I'm not a magician. You know, there's only so much your lawyer can do if you have shared on social media a photograph of yourself in the commission of the crime. But anyway, uh, they couldn't, you couldn't hire a lawyer in Greece, so you had to get up and defend yourself. And the, the jury was not just a, a jury of 12 people, but it was like the whole... Uh, city, the, all the voting population, the voters of the city in the Agora. This sounds scary. Uh, can you imagine you know, being tried before all the voters? Oh, boy. Well, anyway, uh, you had to be very good. It was supposed to be important to be very good at speaking in elocution. And a very flowery, uh, eloquent form of uh, language, which we would not value so much nowadays. We would kind of feel like, well, you need to be more, um, in fact, I suppose if you're going to be tried by all the voters today, it would, uh, it would behoove you to speak in very short sentences. Uh, try to stick with one, sen- one syllable words and five words sentences or something like that. But, oh my, what a snobbish thing for me to say. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Paul had not had that kind of training, apparently, or maybe some of the Greeks felt like his training that he had gotten over there in, uh, in Syria, in the province of Syria, uh, was not the kind of very refined, high-end speech training that you would get, rhetoric and speech training that you would get in Greece. So apparently this was an attack that the false teachers made on him. You know, he's not eloquent the way we are. You know, look at him. I mean, I can't believe you're following a guy who just talks like a regular person. Well, uh, Paul says, yeah, I'm not untrained in speech, but I am in knowledge. Paul had studied at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the best-known rabbis and teachers of the Old Testament scriptures uh, in Israel of that day, maybe the best-known one. So uh, it was like Paul had gone to the... uh, 
Well, I was about to say uh, the Harvard of, of uh, you know, spiritual study in those days. I mean, I would, I would say that Harvard is the TCU of the East Coast, but uh, I don't know. That might seem uh, immodest. And Anyway, uh, you certainly wouldn't want to study religion at either one of those places, I will say that. Um, but he, had, he was very learned in the scriptures, so you know, not second place there at all. And he said he was thoroughly manifest. We have been thoroughly manifested. Um, the Corinthians had had abundant opportunity to observe and know Paul's character. And, and Paul had spoken his message to them plainly, and that's important. And that's another reason for my back on my hobby horse again, that I don't think what the church in America needs today so much of is great spiritual leaders who have a television ministry someplace or whatever. Um, I'm not saying it's sinful to get on television or, or anything like that, but I say that what we do need are faithful elders in local churches all over America. We need lots and lots of them. Being there, speaking the truth, being faithful, week in and week out, day in and day out, so that the people around them can know that what they are in the pulpit is also what they are the rest of the week, too. And that the things that they preach are the things that they practice as well because they've lived among them and they do live among them. And Paul had lived among the Corinthians as was his custom when he came to these uh, cities. He would stay there and sometimes for longer times. He was in Ephesus for quite a long time, a couple of years, I think. He was in Corinth for a while. And they had opportunity to observe and know his character. He wasn't just some guy who came in and, wow, isn't his speech impressive? Isn't he eloquent? Isn't he slick? No, not at all. Moving on quickly. Here we have a block of verses that go together in one thought. Verses 7 through 9. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. Here Paul uses both hyperbole and irony. Hyperbole in saying, I robbed other churches. Paul didn't really go into the other churches and hold them up at gunpoint. Guns weren't invented yet. No, he didn't hold them up at sword point uh, to take their money. Obviously not. Nor did he actually even literally wrong them. He didn't embezzle the money. They thought he was taking the money to minister in their church. But, oh, he's absconded with the money. and he's No, they knew what the money is for. He did not rob them. He did not wrong them. But he is saying... You know, these other churches were providing my support while I was here in Corinth ministering to you, or they're in Corinth ministering to you. So there's hyperbole there. And Paul also uses irony. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? Was that a sin? Was it a sin for me to to preach and, and not demand that you support me? Obviously, it was not. It was a good thing that he did for them. It was a kindness that he did, did for them, that, uh, that he might make the gospel available to them free of charge. And so he received support from other churches. And uh, so he wants to make the point that 
he, he had not, they had not supported him. I wonder if the false teachers who were tormenting the church at Corinth were, were trying to make a profit off, the, off of the Corinthians. It seems like false teachers often do try to make money. Maybe not always. No, I will say not always. But often they do. And, you know, uh, sure somebody comes along with some false teaching and then we cut away to, uh, you know, how you can send money to, their, to support their ministry. And I don't mean the local church. I mean um, some distant ministry that uh, purports to, and, and they're teaching false, a, false, uh, a false gospel. So uh, Paul is not doing that. He's not saying, hey, send money to me. He's saying, no, I haven't taken money from you. Maybe the false teachers were. Uh, oh, by the way, I, I suspect from what he says here, maybe the false teachers were also saying, you know what, Paul doesn't respect you. He doesn't think your money is good enough for him. If he thought you were really any good, he'd let you support him, but he doesn't. I, I just, I draw that, he doesn't say that here, does he? But I, I wonder if uh, that's being implied. And I think that would be a ridiculous thing for the false teachers to say. Hey, Paul doesn't love you. He doesn't take your money. We take your money. That shows we really love you. You know, there are things, I'm sure, that ridiculous and worse being said by false teachers probably on the air right now. You probably turn into some channel somewhere and somebody is saying that, but that's not true. Okay, onwards. Our time grows short. Verses 10 and 11. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. Now, Paul said this boasting in the regions of Achaia. It's not that he never took a dime for preaching the gospel. Not at all. Uh, Paul had made clear that they, God has ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But he hasn't, uh, he hasn't accepted any payment from the churches in Achaia. Why? Because he doesn't love them? Uh, God knows. Obviously, no. It's a, it's a rhetorical question which suggests that the answer must be no. He does love them. That, that is not the reason he is not taking their money. Um, Paul asserts that the truth of Christ is in, in him, that as the truth of Christ is in me, that's, that's not an oath, that's a statement. The truth of Christ is in me, and no one shall stop this, this my boasting in, in the regions of Achaia. The Corinthians being what they were, and the false teachers among them being what they were, Paul had greater liberty to speak the truth to them if he had not received support from them. Having, receiving support from the Corinthians would give an opportunity for the false teachers to undermine his ministry, which we see clearly in the next verse, 12. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast, the things of which they boast. They, they claim that they are spiritual authorities. They claim that they know better than I do what, uh, or better than the apostles do, uh, how you should live and, and please God and be accepted by Christ and how you can be, know that your sins are forgiven and all these things. They've got this other gospel that they're preaching uh, as sort of an add-on to the, to the real gospel, but an add-on that changes the, the thing itself fundamentally. And he says, I'm doing this so that I can cut off their opportunity to, uh, to undermine my ministry, 
to put themselves forward as spiritual authorities. Because whatever the false teachers might say, whether they said, send us your money, or give us your money, or, or whether they said, hey, the fact that we take your money means that we're real spiritual teachers and our spiritual teaching is valuable, whether, whereas Paul didn't charge you anything for his teaching because that's exactly what his teaching is worth, nothing at all. Or whatever they were saying, the fact was that I think everybody really knew Paul knew it, and the Corinthians knew it, and I think the false teachers really knew it in their hearts, that the fact that Paul was there preaching the gospel to them without charge showed that he really sincerely cared for their salvation, that he really sincerely cared for their souls. And the false teachers were false teachers. All right. Onward. Verses 13 through 15 also seemed to me to be a kind of a block that dealt with one thought. So we have our final slide here of the day. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Okay, so transforming here means presenting himself. Satan does not literally become an angel of light in his essence and what he is. Uh, that apparently was actually what he was before the fall. Lucifer, uh, I think, means light bearer. But they stopped being that uh, before. Um, stopped being that when he fell uh, by transgression. But uh, Satan would have people to believe. He would have us to, to believe that he is an angel of light and how Satan likes to transform himself. And therefore, Paul said elsewhere in his writings uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, even if it's an angel, if we or anyone else or an angel from heaven comes to you preaching another gospel, let him be accursed. Don't receive that person. Don't receive that other gospel. So even if the angel Moroni, there isn't one, but if there were an angel Moroni and he did show up and he did tell you to believe another gospel, we're said, that angel is accursed. He's preaching another gospel. It's the wrong kind of angel. And don't follow that one. In the wrong, another gospel we are not to accept and not to believe. Satan trans, but tries to transform himself in our eyes, tries to present himself as an angel of light. And Satan's servants, whether they be his demonic spirits, or, uh, in this case, humans who are uh, doing his bidding, uh, whether knowingly or not, I guess, uh, the false teachers try to put on a plausible experience. It is fool, a, a plausible appearance. It is foolish and dangerous to judge by appearances. It's foolish and dangerous to think that you can look at someone that you don't know and know that, that what that person is telling you is true. And if you don't know me and, and, you know, the fact that I stand here saying something doesn't prove it or not. If you don't know me, you'll have to figure out whether what I'm saying is true by looking at the scripture. You'll have to do what the 
Bereans did when the Apostle Paul came to them preaching the gospel. And it said they searched the scriptures daily whether these things are true, which is actually what we're all supposed to do all the time when we're taught uh, from the gospel. Search the scriptures daily whether these things are true. Don't take my word for this. Look it up in the Bible and see if it's true or not. But um, if you were to think, well, He's got a sincere face. I don't know if I have a sincere face or not. Since I, Now that I'm getting older, I find that I just seem to have a grouchy face all the time. I look at myself in pictures, and I'll look at a photograph of myself, and I remember that when that photograph was taken, where I was, when I was in a perfectly equable mood, and my face looks grouchy. It even looks grouchy to me, and I think, man, I look grouchy. So I, I, I try to make myself remember to smile, look pleasant, and, and all. But I don't know, maybe that, maybe that would undermine, if I went around with a silly grin on, that would undermine my uh, credibility. Not, it's not about my credibility, it's about the word of God. But, uh, you know, um, I heard a, a, a dear Christian lady, uh, just a really a godly saint of the Lord, a mother in Israel who served the Lord for decades, and she was saying, uh, she was saying regarding a television personality, oh, he's such an honest man. Now, she doesn't know him, uh, has never met him, but he, you know, he looks into the camera and he puts on his facial expression that looks like he just found out that pro wrestling is a fake, and uh, he's been described that way, and, uh, and he's very good at just sounding very plausible. I don't think I've ever been very good at that. I don't care whether I am or not. That's not the point. Again, don't take my word for it. Look it up in the scriptures. It would be foolish to listen to anybody and think, oh, this fellow seems very plausible. He seems so sincere. He looks me in the eye. I can tell by looking at him that he's telling the truth. See, I haven't grabbed my and straightened my necktie. Somebody said you can tell that somebody's lying to you because they grabbed their necktie or something. See, I just did that. But um, I, no, we cannot tell the truth of what people are saying to us by that. Uh, and, and, or, for example, people who say, well, I have a word from the Lord. We have to search the scriptures whether these things are true. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. So we need to be on our guard. Uh, Satan's ministers Im- imitate his ways, but he says their end will be according to their works. God will sort it all out in the end. Well, thank you all for your attention and your patience and uh, I'm always reminded when I teach uh, of what a privilege and a responsibility it is to teach God's word, even just as the leader of the review session, just your fellow student who says, well, let's all consider this bit, you know, let's, we're reviewing for the test, which is life, and let's think about this chapter here. It's still a big responsibility. But uh, who is equal for these things? Well, God makes us equal, and again, Search the scriptures and see whether these things are true. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us. And that in it we have the prophetic word more sure than any vision or any uh, uh, supposed claim that might be made to us. And that in your word we can find all things needful for life and godliness. We pray that you would help us to search your word, to to live in it, to hide it in our hearts, to consider our way according to it, and to follow it, 
as we live our lives. We ask your blessing as we uh, conclude this session now, and we pray that you bless us in the session to follow and be with your servant as he brings us your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed.